This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen. I'm Leslie Hinkson. And I'm Gabriel Rossman. Today, our guest is Eric Schwartz, editorial director at Columbia University Press. Eric has been at Springer, Princeton, Cambridge, and Oxford. He's a poli-sci PhD from the New School, but a longtime fixture in the world of sociology publishing. Today, how to work with publishers. Our discussion was recorded on October 7th, 2019. Earlier this season, we spoke with Rachel Skaggs from The Ohio State University. If you missed it, Rachel is a sociologist of culture whose recent work looks at songwriting, and she had some great findings, one of which that was that part of making it in the songwriting business was learning how to interact with gatekeepers, the people whose job is to find and choose viable songs that merit production. And part of what I really liked about talking to Rachel was that it's parallels with our work because we also produce culture and we also engage gatekeepers on a professional level. And luckily, I would say one of the finest gatekeepers in all of sociology publishing has been gracious enough to give us some of his time. Eric Schwartz from Columbia University. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And first, Eric is the editorial director at Columbia University Press, has a long list of a time at a long list of notable presses. Uh, do you want to start off by telling us like a little bit about your background? how you got into publishing and, and the path that you took to editorial director at Columbia? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I graduated undergraduate in 1994 from uh, the University of Delaware. And this was, um, I, I grew up on Long Island, moved immediately back to my parents' house. And this was the time period where you would get a job by going through the want ads of the New York Times. <laughs> the olden days. Yeah, exactly, the good olden days. <laughs> I sent my resume to every job that seemed interesting somehow. And next thing I found myself working for Springer Verlag uh, in the Flatiron building back when it was still owned by a German family in Heidelberg. Uh, <laughs> Every one of the books was color-coded by, uh, by subject area. Um, and I was working in the manufacturing area, so I bought myself a pair of steel-toed shoes thinking I was going to be working in a factory uh, and discovered that I was assisting the person who was sending out purchase orders. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and that, that was my entree into the publishing world. Um, I was there for about a year. I moved over to Oxford University Press. And the nice thing about New York is that it's you know there's it's a real hub for the publishing mm -hmm. community. Um, so I had a colleague who went to Oxford, and I um, followed shortly thereafter. And then I started doing um, MA coursework at the New School in political science. I finished a master's degree, uh, moved to Hawaii for six months, uh, nice. handed out towels at the Hyatt. <laughs> I, I was curious to see whether or not I would, you know, kind of miss New York and miss the academic world. And mm -hmm. and I, when I when I found myself like reading Shakespeare while sitting on the beach, I realized this was time for me to uh, head back to the to the to the New York New York City. I mean, the nice thing about Hawaii is that it's a beautiful place, but the difficult thing is it's beautiful every day, yeah. and so it begins to get monotonous after a while. So I, I moved back to. <laughs> To New York, and I began a PhD program. I started working for Cambridge University Press again in the production area. Sometime about when I finished my PhD coursework, and I, um, I was going to start my dissertation, they were looking for somebody to become a psychology editor. Um, I didn't mm -hmm. know much about psychology, but it didn't it didn't really matter. 
And, uh, and that was how I moved to editorial. And when I finished my degree at the new school, I then, there was an opportunity to move to, to Princeton to become the sociology editor. And I, I did that. I was there for six years, which is amazing now when I think that I've now been here at Columbia for five. It seems like that was a really long you know, kind of period of time, but it actually was not really all that, yeah. all that long. And, and the rest is, uh, the rest is history now. We have a lot of younger listeners. Mm-hmm. Some of them might be open to the idea of a career in publishing. Who's this line of work right for, in your opinion? That's a great question. So I, I think that, I think this line of work, and I, I'll say this line of work, meaning kind of university press editor, mm-hmm. I think this line of work is ideal for the person who wants to have a foot in the academic world and be part of academic conversation and, and can provide an op- you know provide opportunities to help shape academic conversation, but isn't necessarily the type who could do that in their own way. I mean, I, I think that I would be a terrible sociology professor. I think I would maybe be okay at teaching, but just you know knowing kind of the way that I work that real in-depth focus on one particular topic for a you know very long concerted period of time is not something that everybody can can do and I think that you know professors yeah. all engage with one another with such frequency that there's an assumption I think often that everybody kind of is capable of that but it's a really unique I think it's really a unique talent that that all of you have and mm. so you know my sense is that if you like that type of work um, you can do quite a lot of good with this kind of role. So our job often involves selling books to editors, right? Mm-hmm. That's just part of our business. And I think sometimes when we approach an acquisitions editor, we aren't aware of like what demands are pushing them. So like when you go up to an acquisitions editor, what pressures are they feeling as they look at your manuscript? Mm-hmm. So... I would say there are quantitative and qualitative things that drive editors. So qualitatively, on on that sense, we want to have the best list in our general area in our field. Mm-hmm. I think no list in a field, and you know, no list in sociology can be the best list in all areas. But you know, you want to have a certain level of specialty and focus, and you want to have the best list that you can in that area, and that often means publishing people who are doing the most interesting work, but also people who are mid-career, people who are senior. And that then kind of moves to the quantitative, which is that the judgment of quality of work within a field doesn't necessarily correspond to how salesworthy that work is. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the pressures on us as, as acquisitions editors and the pressures I put on my staff as acquisition editors is that I want them to do a combination of the best work that's possible within their field and really be perceived to be that Columbia is going to be the best press in this particular field, but also publish books that are going to kind of have a, you know, a net return in some, in some kind of way in, in aggregate. Well, don't push them too hard on that as someone who <laughs> writes books on bribery, prostitution, <laughs> radio, you know, <laughs> What, what makes a book a, the best possible book it can be in your view? Or is, it, or is it something like you can't advise that? It's just it happens and who knows how. Yeah, I think it's really a process. I mean, there has to be a whole bunch of things that all, all work out. I think really successful books are not ones that just sort of materialize, fully formed, and you know, it's all about what's on the page. Mm-hmm. So, so much I think of what makes a book successful is about the network effects of the of that 
particular author, um, you know, whether they're engaging with, you know, the work that's being done in, in a given field or moving beyond how well does that author work with the various different gatekeepers who are important in a post-production sense, whether that is kind of general mainstream media or that's even just, you know, folks like com- coming on, on at social annex and, and, you know, engaging with people within the field who can help to, you know, get that work out into a conversation. You could have the greatest book in the, in the world that no one has ever seen or read. And, mm-hmm. and it, it's, you know, it's the, you know, there's a tree, you know, fall in the forest and no one's there to hear it uh, kind of problem. So part of what we do as publishers is that we are there yelling, hey, did you hear that tree? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a question for you, especially since like Joe kind of introduced you like by way of Rachel's work, right? With the gatekeepers and, you know, the music industry mm-hmm. and, you know, and there, you know, whatever. And there are norms around what you can and cannot or should or should not do in terms of, you know, approaching someone to buy your song or whatever. And so that's my really long-winded way of asking you, what are some things that you see that you're like, these are definite no-nos. Like these to uh, me are like lines. When you cross uh, this line, <laughs> that is it. I will not consider your manuscript. So. That's a very good question. So I would say, I mean, I would say first kind of preface this by saying that, you know, again, speaking university presses, you know, Columbia University Press is a unit of Columbia University. You know, my paycheck comes from Columbia University. Um, I'm a Columbia University staff member. So I think in that sense, you should view editors at university presses as colleagues. Mm-hmm. And the way, same way in which you would engage with a colleague at another university, I think that's the same way to go about engaging with, with editors. Mm-hmm. I think where people fall down is when they don't do that. When mm-hmm. they're trying really hard to sell me something that is really not, you know, is not what they actually have. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the person who tells me that their book is just like Malcolm Gladwell, just like Steven Pinker, just like Jared Diamond. Mm-hmm. I mean, these things are just not true. Like, <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I don't want to hear that. And it mean, it means that you're not a reliable narrator. Mm-hmm. To me, the, the best kinds of engagement that I get are the per, is the person who emails me and says, you know, I have, I'm thinking about this idea for this. You want to talk about it. You want to talk through it. And um, really kind of engaging me as a colleague and as somebody who can help you do the best work that you that you can do. And the audience for that, you know, is something that you kind of as an author need to figure out who are you, what is the purpose of, of why you're writing this book and who are you writing it for? And it's really genuinely who you are doing the work for, not who um, you think that I think it should be. Got it. Okay, so... Be truthful and like send you lots of emails. <laughs> I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I also have to say too, like be counter cyclical, mm-hmm. right? So you know everybody e- emails me in July because mm-hmm. ASA is coming right up. So yeah. you know, but nobody nobody emails me in December, late December, October. Or January, or like, yeah, October. <laughs> The, you just painted this very sad picture of the loneliest. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're sitting there, 
maybe some sad ass Christmas decoration in your office. Exactly. You're staring at the phone like <laughs> you know, with this nose is just twinkling, and I have one tear just coming yeah. down. <laughs> <laughs> Why won't anybody send a proposal? Yeah. <laughs> I think that, that idea that you know it, there is a pool of people. You know there 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 are finite resources that I have as an editor, and finite, and that's both in time and and finances and how many books I can physically work on at a given mm -hmm. time and for every given season. So don't compete with a dozen other people, you know, compete with no other people or one or two other people. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, good advice. So, so with journal articles, we have this philosophy of you write a complete first draft and then you submit it. And then there's a certain amount of developmental review, but even with developmental review, even if there's three R and R's, it's still basically the same article that it was. I mean, maybe there's a few more citations and a few more footnotes saying, yes, reviewer two is right, water's wet, you know, but mm -hmm. you, you know, but it's still basically the same article and you just kind of slide it under the transom and there's this elaborate ritual of kind of arm's length that nobody knows who anyone else is. So that's yeah. one extreme, right? You could imagine somebody, you know, it'd be a much fatter envelope, but they still, you know, slide the envelope under the, uh, under the door. And it's like, here's this 300 page manuscript, you know, you read it. And then the other extreme would be saying, you know, here's what I'm thinking of writing and here's how I was thinking of shaping it. And I wasn't sure whether to, you know, make a theoretical centered approach or to make a case centered approach or to do this or to or open with an anecdote or open with a theory. You know, how would you advise that? And my understanding is that in the, the latter model is common in trade mm -hmm. and the former model is more common in university presses, but obviously there's going to be a continuum. So what sort of process do you like, a mix of them, whatever? So I generally like the latter style okay. process because it's when that idea is still kind of fresh and open and you haven't, as an author, taken any particular path that you're going to be, you know, have sunk costs of spending a tremendous yeah. amount of time on. Oftentimes, you know, I think that it, through conversation with authors, it's a, good, it's a good way for me to try to elicit out of them what it is that they're trying to do. You know, people are so they're the closest person to the research and often have a hard, hard time being able to articulate exactly what it is, is about or yeah. maybe what it is about for, you know, a couple of notches, you know, kind of lower in the kind of level of understanding. I mean, I generally will tell authors, you know, think about an upper level undergraduate as your ideal leader. Mm -hmm. And I think that for you know people who are used to writing journal articles, you're writing for your peers. You're con you know your writing style is just conveying data, and that's not really conducive to a to a book. What I the key to a, a good book is a very clear question and a very clear answer to that question. Mm -hmm. And that complete manuscript often is really it's hard to sometimes backfill in what those qualities ought to be. Mm -hmm. I think also too in good academic work, either whether it's for a trade or for a, um, a more scholarly audience, you know, having those components of, you know, kind of some kind of narrative arcs, you know, setting some sort of authorial voice. Uh, you know, you're asking somebody to spend however many hours with you, and you want to make it kind of nice, you know, as nice as possible. It doesn't need to be, you know, that you are the center of attention in your book. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, it, there should still be that element. Otherwise, you should just write a journal articles yeah. because those are, those are the 
easier way to convey that material to your colleagues. And I've had lots of potential authors who, uh, you know, who I've approached and who have said, you know what, I'm really good at writing articles. I'm just going to keep doing that. <laughs> I don't need to learn some other, you know, another, another way of communicating to people. And I don't really care to reach an audience beyond, you know, beyond that group. So Eric, so you went to Columbia, like right after Princeton, right? And correct me if I'm wrong, but part of your move was, you know, you would have that you had this opportunity to kind of, in many ways, remake, you know, Columbia, like the press. And I'm wondering, and also just a little while ago, you also reminded our listeners that, you know, when you're approaching an editor, you need to be thinking about, you know, well, what kinds of books does that press actually specialize in? And I'm wondering, how have you changed the focus of Columbia University Press since you got there, particularly in terms of sociology offerings and what are you hoping to see more of where are you what types of sociology projects are you hoping to see more of out of Columbia that's a great question so um, yeah I think you're exactly right the move was for those kinds of reasons it was a you know an opportunity to kind of step take a step up in level so now I manage the editorial department in addition to being an editor rather than just being an editor in a in a field that was fairly well established at the press mm-hmm. Columbia University Press didn't have a formal sociology list before I arrived. And there were ways in which the lists at the press in general were, I think, in an older paradigm. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that I did when I got here, the first two days when I started were both like strategic review uh, meetings. And there was actually a review that the university had done of of the press. Um, So at the time, the press was an independent 5013C that was getting money from the university, but it wasn't actually a formal unit of the university. And that's something that we've, we've, we've been incorporated into the university. Mm-hmm. I and mean, there's a whole backstory to why the press was independent. Uh, Wikipedia is the, is the, <laughs> is the blame. Um, uh, and, oh, really? uh, but so one of the, one of the, so we developed a strategic plan um, in those early days. And one of the things that we did with the strategic plan was we, said that um, you know university presses believe very strongly in peer review and so why not peer review ourselves so we had each of the editors write an assessment of their own list and we sent those out to people in their field and had them write reports on uh, on their fields and we used that information to both adjust some of the fields that we've published in and then also give ourselves a great sense of how do people perceive us and the kind of Columbia brand, as we've as we've landed on it, is is that Columbia books are global, urban, and contemporary, mm-hmm. and that's what a that's what a kind of a quintessential Columbia book is. It is, doesn't necessarily have to be all of those things, but it's got to be at least one of those things. And mm-hmm. and what that means is that you know we're reflective of how people perceive Columbia University. We're a you know, we're a New York City school. We are you know a university that really tries to be part and help shape the public conversation and do so in a way that is that is global in scale. And so that's kind of the broad sense of, you know, Columbia University Press books and then therefore what is a Columbia sociology book? It then fits within to that within that context. So we want to see more books in in urban sociology in a variety of different kinds of ways. So mm-hmm. you know getting back to some of what we were talking about earlier, the idea of, you know, people who live in cities and what are the unique kinds of challenges that people who live in, in cities have in terms of kind of, you know, housing and income and industry. 
um, mm-hmm. and things of that things of that sort. The future of work, I think, is is going to be and and kind of work and occupations in general is going to be something mm-hmm. that gets to the kind of the contemporary. Mm-hmm. There was a conference that I participated in through the Columbia Global Centers, in which we went around to each one of the global centers throughout the world and asked them, "What is the big issue that you have in your region?" And everybody said, "Youth and the future of work." Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's going to be kind of a continued continued issue, and that that speaks to the contemporary. Um, and then global, I would love to see. You know, most sociology tends to be very American centric. Mm-hmm. And are there ways that we can, you know, integrate cases throughout the world that help to um, inform people who are working in sociology in the field in the U.S., but you know, give us a broader context? Um, not every city is is should, needs to be modeled on Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> so editors are looking for list consistency, and that is what Columbia is looking for. So if you're working in these topics, you give Erica. A shout out, preferably in low season. Yeah. <laughs> the idea there too is that you have all, you know, we have editors who are working in all different fields in political science and history and, um, you know, philosophy, religion, and that we want somebody to come to our table at the American Academy of Religion or American or American Sociological Association, look at a bunch of books, not know who the editor is or what field it's in and say, you know, I'm interested in what Columbia does and I'm going to read you know, beyond my field, or I'm just going to pick that book right. up because it looks cool somehow. Mm-hmm. Actually, you're, you're trying to get brand identity, like, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, you said that Columbia pulling the press into the university has something to do with Wikipedia? Oh, no. So, yeah, well, historic. So, so Columbia um, University Press during the, you know, most of the 20th century was completely propped up by the Columbia Encyclopedia. Oh. <laughs> uh, so it was a single... Single yeah. volume reference program that paid for everything here, uh, and uh, uh, that completely collapsed. As one, you know, you know why. Sure. And it caught everybody, you know, slightly unawares. And you were then just, you know, basically spending down anything, any any surplus that that existed until you know the the press um, had to, you know, had a warehouse and distribution business that needed to be closed down, and had a huge reference business that needed to be closed down. And all of that period of time also of having this cash cow allowed for a certain level of independence. And I think that was the norm at the time was mm-hmm. for university presses to try to keep their home institutions at arm's length. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of fallen out of fashion. I think, it, you know, as, as the changing fortunes of, of publishing dictate that we're reliant on, you know, in the case of somewhere like Princeton, you know, a fairly substantial endowment in the case of Columbia, um, any fundraising that we do, plus um, you know, plus money that we get from the university, as you know, they provide a, a budget to us, like they do to any any department or any you know any other unit. You've been listening to the Annex a Sociology Podcast. Special thank you to Eric Schwartz from Columbia University Press. We're on the web, sociocast.org/annex, on Twitter at sociannex and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Lisette Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>